From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Zach, we're missing Adam again this week. Yeah, uh, poor guy. He's, uh, he's, he's in, a busy guy. Yeah, well, you know. He's jet-setting. I did notice that he just happened to be in uh, Miami while it was snowing in uh, New York. So <laughs> yeah. good work on that. No, he, <laughs> he made the snowstorm. He was here. And oh, then okay. He, well, and then immediately he left, escaped so. afterwards. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, but a, a brief trip, unfortunately, he won't be joining us uh, for today's pod or Monday's. But we will go on. Somehow. We as we always on. do. Yeah. So um, what have you been reading? So I really enjoyed Olivia White's piece about uh, the beer that was brewed for Lord of the Rings, um, <laughs> the sobering thought. Uh, just like, you know, we've talked a few times before on the pod about alcohol in movies and how it's portrayed. And, and we mostly have talked about things like, you know, cocktails and whether they're made correctly or the kind of cachet of certain things with wine. But you know, for people like me who are, you know, I would call myself a pretty, a moderate Lord of the Rings fan, enjoyed the movies, prefer the books, but you know, that's just me. Um, it is interesting to think about how they really were drinking beer, granted very low ABV beer, but beer nonetheless, while filming all those, um, you know, kind of tavern scenes and the drinking contest in the second movie and all this stuff. Um, or I guess actually, the third movie, whatever, whichever movie it's in, I can't even remember. Clearly, my nerd cred <laughs> is evaporating. Uh, as we speak, but um, just kind of a fun thing, you know, nothing, I, something I never thought about other than noting that in the books in particular, there's a lot of time devoted to the importance of beer and the relative qualities of different beers and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I can, I can dig it. I'm sure J.R.R. Tolkien, had he been alive today, would have been, had lots of thoughts on the craft beer scene or something. But um, yeah, no, it's just kind of a fun read and uh, something I had never thought about, which to me is sometimes the hallmark of a good article. It answers a question I didn't even know I had. Yeah. It's so funny. Um, I, a couple of weeks ago, I had mentioned reading, uh, really enjoying the Heisler beer piece, that beer yeah, that's exactly. made for, yeah, the fake beer. Well, it's real beer, but it, it's, no, it's not real beer. It's it's made for <laughs> TV, TV and movies and stuff. And that piece performed really well. Like, I think a lot of people are actually really interested in these types of pieces, especially for interesting beer stories and brands um, that, yeah, maybe you hadn't thought about, but find really interesting. Yeah. And especially in the case of something like this, where it's not even a packaged product where you can where you can see sort of what the sort of I don't know they're the the sort of props people are trying to accomplish with it. Yeah. Um, here it's it's like you know it, it could have been in theory kind of anything that looked sufficiently beer like in those mugs and flagons and whatnot, but uh, they really went for it, which I dig. Mm-hmm. How about you? What have you been reading? Yeah, so a lot of great stuff on the site this week. But one uh, article that I wanted to talk about by Shana Clark is about kind of a curious, curious thing that the best selling about the best selling new wine skew of 2023, which happens to be Stella Rosa's pineapple and chili wine, um, which when we found out this, uh, you know, information, I guess, earlier this year, or the end of last year, that was so curious so Shana's piece like really digs into why <laughs> this particular semi-sweet flavored wine um was the best-selling new skew of 2023 um and how unlikely it might seem to a lot of people so uh we thought that we could use this piece kind of as a jumping off point for today's conversation but Zach I know you wanted to talk about 
uh, who is winning the flavor war and flavor in general. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this whole concept to me is really intriguing because I feel like an ongoing thread in our conversations over the last few years has been this discussion of, I would say, not exactly opposing forces, but, but maybe not perfectly aligned forces in the drinks industry and what we're seeing as trends. And we've talked a number of times, you can go back through the archives and listen to us talk about the importance of flavor and flavor forward, flavor centric drinks to a lot of the drinking public. I think in particular younger drinkers, but far from exclusively. And yet several parts of the drinks industry, wine being one prime example, have largely either resisted it or have consigned that have have sort of sort of segmented off that market. And I think Stella Rosa is a great example of a brand that is tremendously successful and yet completely off the radar for a lot of wine professionals, a lot of wine journalists, a lot of people in and around wine, and probably a lot of people who who make and sell wine too. And yeah. again, I think I want to I want to caveat everything we discuss here in, in, by saying that I when I when I say when I say what I'm going to say, I don't mean that there every winery should be rushing to make this kind of wine. But I do think that it's very instructive to look at why stuff like this is popular. And for the wine industry in particular, an industry that is in need of a lot of strategy around att- attracting new drinkers, retaining drinkers, it is very short-sighted to just sort of look at something like this as a gimmick, because I don't think it is. Yeah, I think a really interesting part of this piece, um, I can't remember exactly who uh, the source was, but acknowledge kind of the the fast innovation and willingness to test ideas that we have definitely seen less of in the wine space compared to other categories, like spirits in particular. Um, But we've definitely discussed this reluctance on behalf of wine. And as you said, has been an extremely successful strategy for Stella Rosa. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think, you know, we're, we're always talking about how wine is very slow to adapt um, and, reluctant to adapt as well. And I think that um, that's a huge part of the some of the issues it's been facing um, the past couple of years. Yeah. And I, I think it's, you know, that one of the one of the kind of main through lines in this, in this sort of, I don't want to say debate, but whatever the, the sort of back and forth about what a segment, a meaningful segment of the wine drinking or just drinking public is showing that it wants through its purchases and through, you know, all the kind of attended information we have versus what a lot of the wine industry is prepared to offer it is that like people, people want recognizable flavors. They want interesting flavors. They want bold flavors and they want them to be kind of presented in a way that bring that makes people feel comfortable with the product. And again, I don't mean to say that every producer out there should be aping this, but I think the producers that are doing interesting things that are doing, you know, whether it's co-ferments, whether they're blending in other um, kind of flavor agents into their wine, they're finding other ways to bring these flavors in, or are just doing a good job of talking about the naturally occurring flavors in their, in their wines 
are going to succeed because I think what we've seen is that the kind of old school tasting notes model for selling wine just is no longer resonant with younger consumers. And and people are turned off by them because they are, frankly, mostly a lot of crap. I mean, there's a lot of very, very uh, either jargony language or just a degree of specificity that feels, frankly, pretty ridiculous, um, you know. You could talk about your, you know, just slightly ripe Bartlett pear tasting notes or whatever. And I think there's a time and space for those. But when they start creeping onto labels and start creeping into sort of shelf talkers and stuff like that, I think you're doing more harm than good in a lot of cases. But also, I, I think it's rec- it's important to note that all of these, the wines in the sort of the flavored wines in the Stella Rosa portfolio are like really straightforward, not or not straightforward. They're very recognizable, comprehensible flavors to people. Mm-hmm. Pineapple and chili, uh, you can get an idea of what this is going to taste like before you open the bottle and pour it in your glass or whatever. And I think that actually matters to people. I, I think, especially for the kind of consumer set where in a lot of cases this is going to be their some of their early introduction to wine or it's going to be what they drink as they perhaps start to explore other things. I, I want to talk about its price point too, because I think that's an interesting discussion too. But but I don't know. I mean, what else about this in, is interesting to you, Joanna? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but I think there's definitely um, an impulse to kind of poo-poo a brand like this or to ignore it or to not acknowledge it on behalf of like fine wine um, and wine professionals. But I think a brand like this is actually really, really important for the category because as you said, it is the on-ramp for a lot of new consumers and people who previously had no experience with wine. And if this is the way, if a brand like Stella Rosa and flavored wine is a way for people to get in into wine, um, then I think, you know, wine in general should be grateful for it. And that maybe not, like you said, not every producer has to have a flavored wine in its portfolio. But um, yeah, if this brings more consumers to wine, I, I don't, I think it should be, you know, acknowledged. And, and that's important. I think the other th- com- uh, comparison that was made in this article that I thought was really interesting was to wine coolers in the 80s. And for a lot of people who, you know, first drank those, later got into wine in a maybe a more serious way, like, I think that's an important comparison to look to and acknowledge that it's important. Yeah. And I I definitely think, too, that um, that on-ramp idea is really important. It's an important thing for wine to embrace. I think it's an important thing for producers of all sizes to embrace. And I think most of all, you know, you mentioned this, and I think it's extremely true that like wine in particular is in a, in a position where it can't be, a, it can't afford to play the, this is real wine, this isn't real wine game. Oh, um, but it loves to do that. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's, it's, it's self-defeating on several levels. For one, you know, you you just you turn yourself off from a, a potential audience for people who are going to they're going to see your snobbery. They, they're going to understand your snobbery. They're going to be repelled by your snobbery, and either they're going to really try your product in the first place, or they're going to move away from wine into categories that feel more welcoming. I mean, again, you think about the success spirits has had the spirits category has had some uh, over the last decade or so, and so much of it is because very few parts of the spirits community, besides a few very kind of like niche categories or niche L, uh, areas, invest much energy in telling you oh, this thing that you like to drink is actually bad and you're a bad person for drinking it. 
there's some amount of like, hey, if you like this, you might like that. Hey, maybe you would prefer a more whatever nuanced, sophisticated, i.e. expensive version of that. But there isn't a lot of like, oh, you like Jim Beam? Well, you don't really like whiskey. Like that's just mm-hmm. not an attitude that you see much in the in the spirits industry, at least public facing. And wine has so many examples of this that I don't even know where to start, where, you know, people will say, oh, I love to drink wine. And, uh, you know, the person will say, oh, what do you drink? And they say, Stella Rosa, pineapple and chili. Or they say, uh, you know, name another large production brand. And instead of being like, oh, okay, like, let's talk about maybe what you like about that. Or maybe that gives me some idea of like, what kind of other product you might enjoy or like what you find enjoyable about drinking wine in the first place. It's just a lot of like, oh, that's not real wine. Like, and sometimes that is then like, let me show you what real wine is. And maybe some of those people land that, you know, kind of difficult maneuver. I think a lot of times it's just kind of that person is, again, it's kind of like um, ostracized from the wine conversation. And that sucks. It it would suck even if wine were really killing it. And it's, it really sucks because wine is not. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe this is too big of a question to ask, but where do you think that all comes from? That like elitism in the wine that you're peddling? I mean, I think a lot of it is just wine as a category, wine as a product has gotten so, and a lot of the way that it's talked about has become so sort of navel-gazy and obsessed with its own rules, policies, practices, you know, again, I think about like how, you know, again, this is going to be maybe a weird way to, to to frame this, but bear with me. So I think a lot about how a lot of the wine conversation over the last decade plus has been driven by or centered around sommeliers and in particular sommeliers who have been accredited by mostly the Court of Master Sommeliers, to some extent, the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, and how those bodies, a lot of the sort of testing and architecture of those bodies and their accreditations is around Technical data, rules, laws, you know, history, all this kind of granular, specific, right, wrong, factual data. Mm-hmm. And a, a surprisingly limited amount, and even in the tasting component, there's a lot of attempts at objectivity and sort of a, a kind of non-subjective way of looking at wine, which you know, this isn't the podcast to get into my broader thoughts on that. But even if you believe that's a a good and valid way to test someone's wine aptitude, it's very hard to keep that language and that mindset from sort of bleeding into the way you talk to people about wine, whether you're a sommelier, whether you're a retail shop owner, whether you're a wine writer, or someone else, or a, you know, a a winemaker, etc. And it isn't to say that objectivity and facts and things like that don't have a place in the conversation, but they're so at a remove from the way that a lot of people want to enjoy wine as a pleasurable beverage that they have with friends or alone or somewhere in between. And that, that the divide has only widened because the, the, those accrediting bodies have really driven this idea that the wine expert is someone who has all of this information at their fingertips. And okay, there's a kind of skill in that and a kind of knowledge in that. And I don't mean to say that it isn't there. There's nothing there or that it certainly doesn't take a lot of hard work to achieve that. But like, you know, I follow a lot of people on Instagram who are, you know, either 
at various levels of accreditation or pursuing further ones. And some of them like to post the stuff they're studying. And I, a wine professional, sometimes look at it. I'm just like, why are you wasting your time learning this? Like, it's not that this information shouldn't be available, but it is available. You can go look it up and you should spend less time memorizing all of this obscure data because, at least in my opinion, because it will never help you enjoy a glass of wine. It will never help you relate to someone else about a glass of wine. And I'm not even sure it really serves the purpose that these uh, bodies think it does or, you know, whatever. And so because that whole sort of those app, those testing apparatuses and just the, all of those things have created this world where you're kind, of, like kind of said, what is that information over people? Yeah. And also kind of like, they sort of said like, as we see it, this is what wine is, right? Like this, this the things within this box and and this isn't really what they say, but it's how it's often taken. You know, these classical wines that you might get in a blind tasting exam. This is what wine is. This is what mm-hmm. you should know about wine. Or wine is only made from Vitis vinifera, and it's only made in these places, and it's only made in these styles. And this other stuff isn't really wine. When the truth of it is, is that throughout almost all of human history, wine was way more like this Stella and Ro- Stella Rosa pineapple and chili wine than <laughs> the fucking Grand Cru Burgundies that people obsess over now. Like. Wine has always been, first and foremost, a mix of a way to get people drunk, a way to give people a sort of pleasurable, often sweet, but flavorful thing to drink, and like a thing to do with the grapes that you grow that, you know, you a way to preserve grapes, like in the same way that we make jams and jellies and preserves and other things. Like we want to take fruit in all its forms and turn it into something that we can have year round and uh, fermenting it is just one way to do that. And so to me, I actually find a lot of uh, excitement and interest in people who are like, in a way being, I think, truer to the nature of what wine can be, not has to be, but can be by looking at wine grapes with other stuff, right? Other fruits, other types of grapes, other flavoring agents. This isn't to say that like the Stella Rosa is like, I mean, you know, we'll taste it in a bit. We'll see. But I think that there's plenty of space in the world for product like this that's maybe made slightly differently, that's made maybe in a more artisan fashion that could be both delicious and also as honest and true an expression of wine as the aforementioned Grand Cru Burgundy. Yeah. I think think I'd like to talk about why this in particular, this skew. Yeah. (laughs) Why particularly took off and when it did well should we taste it and then we can maybe uh yeah talk about why we think it hits it's hit the american palate so hard yeah let's do it i think the piece you know gets gets in like hits on all of these points and kind of explores the reasons why but i, I think they're worth discussing because i think it's really fascinating so okay yeah. we should know that this is a semi-sparkling wine to be i clear. was just i did i did not know that oh yeah <laughs> so there's one trend all right. Definitely smells like pineapples and chili. But not like aggressively so. It's so it's also um interesting to note that it's 5% ABV. Uh-huh. So it's a low alcohol wine. Yeah. Well, and it's a uh, it's essentially an inf- like a a moscato that they've made with these flavors. So Have you tried it? Yeah, I'm I'm tasting it here. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, you got a little bit of the chili. Yeah. In the throat. Yeah. 
It's not too uh, it's not too spicy though. I think it just uh it does it a little bit and it's definitely pineapple-y. And and vaguely winish. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I think it delivers on what it's yeah on what it's uh, promising. Mm-hmm. Also, I want to note and to me a very interesting thing: it has a full nutritional facts label on it. Ah, oh yes, it does. So has all of that, including ingredients, calories, etc. Uh, very atypical for wine, but I dig it. Um, yeah. Its label is also printed in both. English and Spanish. Yeah, the back the back label has some um, yeah, has has like the sort of descriptors are all in in English and Spanish. It doesn't mm-hmm. have all of the information I think as such, but yeah, no, it's I honestly yeah. think like if you like the flavor set and you know, probably most people do, I I, I it is way it is much less cloying and much less kind of it's not as overt as I thought it might be. Both the pineapple and the chili are very are quite present, but they're yeah. not. It doesn't taste like you're drinking a, you know, a sort of pineapple chili. Like, yeah, I don't know. It, it tastes like, you know, obviously a flavored wine, but it tastes like like a decentish like kind of spritz or something, which I think is what they're kind of going for. Yep, it tastes like a spritz. I would say I, I, it's not as cloying as yeah I thought it might have been, um, and it doesn't have like a terrible. Aftertaste, I don't know. I feel like people would maybe have certain expectations for a product like this. But, um, yeah, I I get it. I get why it's so popular. Yeah. I think, you know, the piece mentions that it was launched as part of a spiced series. Uh Uh-huh. At what year? 2023 or 2022? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think the whole line was launched within the last year, but yeah. Yeah. But kind of, you know, acknowledging that there were very few new products entering the market at that time. So it was a good opportunity. And then also riding on the somewhat riding on the coattails of RTDs and um, kind of positioning itself as that. And that's also where we've seen a lot of flavor and flavor flavor forward um, ideas there. So. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. It also mentions that a lot of people are drinking this added to margaritas, not swapping not swapping it in for anything, just adding it to yeah. a regular margarita recipe, which I think is really interesting, or drinking it over ice um, and, and really just kind of uh, using it as more of an all-purpose drink than for any particular occasion or way to drink it. And I think that's also part of why it's been so successful, right? I think with wine, with fine wine, uh, it's very prescriptive about how you can drink it and when and, you know, the environment and things like that. And with what, exactly. And so to have a product like this that is, um, you know, doesn't say how you have to drink it, I think is really appealing to a lot of people. For sure. And I think the last thing I wanted to say about this is that, you know, I mentioned before the price, and I, I'll be curious to hear from you in a sec, but, you know, the MSRP in the piece is ten ninety nine. I paid twelve yep. ninety nine a bottle for this. What did you pay? <laughs> I paid like nineteen ninety nine or yeah. something. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, it's listed at, it was listed at the grocery store <laughs> near me as being like eighteen ninety nine, but on sale for twelve ninety nine, which I'm uh-huh. sure is its permanent price. Like, I'm sure it's never actually eighteen ninety nine. dollars uh, I would bet. But. 
the the point to me is that you know the other reason why I think the wine industry writ large should embrace stuff like this is if someone is already paying. 13 15 20 dollars for this you don't actually have to take them up a, a, a much in a price point if you're someone who's making you know interesting affordable ish wine like oh, they've already shown you a willingness to pay in that range for for something they like so you're not trying to convince someone to go from drinking a you know the, two buck chuck yeah exactly the no longer two buck chuck but whatever the <laughs> the the sub five dollar wine to to twenty five dollars or something like that that's a very difficult leap to get Jump. people to make especially on any kind of regular basis but this is much more you know you're, you're getting into the range where you could find more kind of classically styled wines that are you know similarly priced or at least close you know close enough by that it's not a huge lift for people and again all the more reason to to, I think instead of reject out of hand to perhaps embrace stuff like this, or at least, you know, not publicly talk shit about them. Yeah. I think they, you know, one last thing I'll mention is that um, I think they were really smart about their flavors too. Yeah. Uh, obviously I think, you know, just generally more robust flavors. We know people are looking for them and that's what sells. But I think, sp- you know, spiced flavors, um, spicy and sweet are yep. definitely things that people have been trending towards in the last couple of years. So to kind of jump on that, obviously we also saw the jalapeno rosé trend happen last yep. year. Um, but uh, yeah, again, I think this kind of speaks to the you know willingness to test ideas and to be creative and to kind of jump on things and be more nimble um, and to innovate and how that can pay off for a brand. Yeah, and obviously we recognize that you know lot, parts of the wine industry just simply can't iterate sure. and sh- change gears that fast. I mean, there are real limitations to a once a year agricultural crop that takes a number of years to even get established in a place. So again, it's not as if we think that people should be responding to every micro trend by trying to make a wine that hits that trend. But a lot of this stuff is, I mean, Adam and I have been talking about the popularity of spicy drinks since this podcast's inception, you know, five, almost six years ago now. And we have been talking about flavor as a huge driver for at least the last four years. And I think that, you know, you don't have to make a product that mimics this. I mean, maybe if you're a big brand, you do, because, you know, it's all about, you know, kind of trying to get on those trends when you can. But if you're a smaller producer or just any size, really, it's not so much how do you make your version of this wine? It's how do you make a wine that appeals to the same kind of drinker that likes this wine? Because it, mm-hmm. as we said, it's the best, you know, top selling new wine skew of 2023. I think that's there are there are comprehensible and actionable reasons for that for almost any producer, even if you're never going to make a product that is in any way, shape, or form like this. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. I don't know. I just want to encourage wine when the wine industry to take more chances. Like it, history is great, tradition is great. I don't want to see those things go away, but I think that being too, you know, clinging to them too blindly can also be very dangerous. Yeah, it seems like uh being open-minded at this point is really the the least you could do. Yeah, for yeah. sure. All right, Zach, well, this was a great chat and uh I hope I'm going to go finish this bottle. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> TGIF, right? That's right. And I'll talk to you on Monday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. 
if you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.